All right. Well, good morning. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, appreciate uh, you uh, today. And, and I want to um, encourage you this morning uh, in a message from the book of Nahum. And uh, so let me invite you to grab a Bible and, uh, and to find the book of Nahum. If, you're, uh, if, you're, if you struggle to find it, um, just remember it's right before the book of Habakkuk. Right. That should help you. That should give you all the information you need. Actually, we've been in Jonah for a long time. And, uh, and so if, you're, if you can find Jonah, as you have for the past uh, several um, months, then you go through Micah, and then the next one is Nahum. Uh, if you open your Bible to the very middle, it should open to the book of Psalms. And then if you go right, about 10 or so books, you'll run into Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and uh, Habakkuk. They all kind of come as a group together. If you're new to church um, or haven't been in a long time, let me just remind you that, that this is the part of our gathering together, of our, of our meeting, where uh, I spend um, a few minutes and we open up the Bible and hear a message uh, from the Bible and try to make some application to our life today. Uh, and so that's what we do during this time. And, uh, and this is part of, uh, uh, of our regular worship service is just opening the Word of God, um, understanding that God speaks to us through his word and he often uses broken people like myself uh, to deliver a message and that um, that the Holy Spirit will apply that to our life now I'm willing to bet um, that this may be one of the only messages sermons that you've ever heard in the book of Nahum you may have heard a sermon series. I don't know. I, I, I may be wrong to make that assumption, but, um, but just out of curiosity, how many of you have heard a sermon in the book of Nahum before that you can remember? Hey, there's one. Uh, we got one person who's heard a sermon in the book of Nahum. Uh, I tried to find sermons from uh, other popular preachers and to see how many sermons have been preached through the book of Nahum. And I found one from 1972, right? So Nahum has not been burning on the lips of pastors and churches uh, for a few uh, centuries, maybe. Uh, It's part of the Word of God, and it has an important place in the Word of God. And it's particularly interesting to us today, having just finished the book of uh, Jonah, because Jonah went to Nineveh to preach against them, to warn them about God's judgment. 150 years before Nahum did. Nahum went about 150 years later, and Nahum was the prophet that Jonah wanted to be. Nahum is the prophet that Jonah wanted to be. Nahum was given the instruction to go and proclaim judgment against Nineveh that Nineveh would be destroyed. And he did this around 650, and then Nineveh was destroyed in 612. So Jonah um, went to Nineveh hoping that God would destroy them. Nahum went to Judah telling them that Nineveh was about to be destroyed, and it happened. Nahum was the prophet that Jonah wished he could have been. Um, And in many ways, Jonah was the most unusual of the prophets. Most of the time, the prophet is given a word to speak to God's people or a judgment against a neighboring nation. And the, the particular focal point of each of those prophets is their message, 
not the prophet himself. Jonah is extremely unusual in that he was the message, and we only have really five Hebrew words of the message that Jonah preached. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It didn't happen. Jonah got angry. We spent a long time in the book of Jonah. So it felt right for us to follow up with whatever happened to Nineveh. Whatever happened to Nineveh. And we can do that best by looking at the book of Nahum. Now listen, if you'll just hang on with me, I want to give you some uh, sort of background material to Nahum. Because it's easy to run all these prophets together and not understand that they were real people. They had parents. uh, They had spouses. They had children. They lived in a context. They had uh, friends and relatives. They had ups and downs, highs and lows. They had a job to do. They were messengers. They often delivered God's word in different periods. And so sometimes we can just read them all lumped together and lose the fact of who they are and what they're saying. So let me just give you some, some basic stats about who Nahum was and, uh, and what Nahum did before we get into the text. Where Jonah went to Assyria to preach to Nineveh in around the year 820, somewhere between 820 and 770, Nahum arrives more than a century later, 150 years or so later, and he declares an oracle against Nineveh. Nahum prophesied the destruction of Nineveh, which happened in 612. So it happened within 30 years. But the fall of the Assyrian Empire was just beginning when Nahum stood up among the fellow Israelites in Judah, and he prophesied the oppressor, is no longer going to oppress you. Assyria, the Ninevites, their capital was Nineveh, the nation Assyria, they're no longer going to oppress you. And the the text kind of helps us understand how God interacts with these world superpowers. In these all these world superpowers that have come and gone, nation rising up and nation being defeated, the Lord oversees all of those. Well, that has significant value for us to understand that as different nations rise up to power and different nations have their sort of focal point on the world stage, such as the United States of America for a period of time, that those countries rise and those countries fall. And all around the world, there are different nations that sort of take that place. And the Lord is over each of those sort of world superpowers. Different parts of these world superpowers that we read about, like Assyria, um, participate in all sorts of evil, uh, participate in all sorts of violence and wickedness, and then there's only a short amount of time that the Lord puts up with that. There's only a short amount of time that the Lord puts up with that before he deals with them. And Nahum prophesies the destruction of Nineveh. And when you were, if you were to just read Nahum alone, and you hear about sort of the angry, violent vengeance that God will take upon them, when you hear that alone, um, it, you could think God is just this harsh God. And we'll, we'll cover that in a little while. But, but when you realize that God sent envoys to Assyria through Jonah, even 150 years before, to warn them and to preach to them and to give them an opportunity to repent and to turn to God and to find mercy and grace in Him, then you start to see the long-suffering patience of God, which often gives us lots of time, lots of warnings, lots of opportunities before the destruction takes place. 
We'll get to that in a few minutes. A couple of things about the book. It's dated to around 650. Um, Nahum is under the reign of King Manasseh in Judah. He writes this book to encourage Judah that the oppressive, cruel nation of Assyria, whose capital is Nineveh, is going to be destroyed. And I think that when he said that somewhere in his grave, Jonah probably gave a little fist pump, right? Finally, they're going to get theirs, right? Um, he, so he's writing to Judah to encourage them that the oppressors and the evil ones are going to be destroyed. It really breaks down in three parts, and we're going to look in depth of the three parts of the book of Nahum. There is an opening psalm. That's verses 1 through 8, chapter 1. It's just a little song. And in this song, it's an acrostic. You know what an acrostic is? Like Psalm 119, every first letter of the line begins with a Hebrew alphabet letter. If you, you don't have to now, but if you look later, I promise you, in Psalm 119, you'll see the entire Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion, Pei. All the parts of the Hebrew alphabet are listed in Psalm 119. And as a poetic um, way of writing, they would start the first letter of each sentence in that section with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The first eight verses of Nahum are adapted from an acrostic poem. They all begin with different letters. It's not the full Hebrew alphabet. It's just a part of it. So that's part one. Part two, there are these alternating exchanges where uh, Nahum is talking to Judah, and then he's talking to Nineveh, then he's going to talk to Judah, and then he's going to talk to Nineveh, and then he's finally going to talk uh, to Judah. And then the third part, he predicts the details of how Nineveh would be destroyed. That's kind of the, the action movie part of the book of Nahum. So we're going to get into that in just a minute, but I can see your boredom increasing, and so I want to kind of help get, uh, get to some of the bottom line pictures of Nahum. If I had to make some general conclusions, because we're going to cover three full chapters this morning, and so I want to gloss over a lot. So I want to give you four big takeaways about the book before we get into it. One first big takeaway is that every nation, its rise and fall is under the sovereign authority of God. Every single nation, every single tribe, every single people group, every single individual group of people living anywhere on the planet at any time has its rise and its fall, has its comings and goings, its dealings, and it all fits under the sovereignty of God. It may be obvious to say, but oftentimes we can forget that God is sovereign over all nations, even and especially when those nations do terrible things. Think of a Nazi Germany kind of nation and understanding that God's sovereignty was able to take what was meant for evil and turn it for good gives us pause to understand that, that it didn't surprise God that that happened. <clears throat> the second big picture of the book of Nahum is that God demonstrates mercy and patience and long-suffering and he warns and speaks and he convicts nations and individuals even those who are hard-hearted and stubborn and who refuse to turn or change. God is very patient. He's very loving. He's very kind. It's part of his attributes is that he will warn over and over and over again. He will give opportunities to turn. He will give mercy to those, uh, all people on the planet. We start to think about um, how, um, you know, when, when God brings about destruction, 
Sometimes we can wonder why they didn't have any chance to hear the gospel. It's not true. God has made himself known, Romans 1, to all people, and he gives them opportunity to experience his mercy and grace. That's the second big point of the book of Nahum. The third big point is that when punishment comes, it is just and it is irrevocable. When punishment comes, it's just and it's irrevocable. God never punishes out of anger. Have you ever had a, a parent who punishes you out of anger, right? My dad, uh, from time to time, when we heard the belt kind of whipping through the belt buckles, we knew it were scatter, right? There were three boys and we were getting kind of rambunctious and we, we could hear there's a distinct sound that leather makes when it goes through, uh, you know, belt loops. And, and when that would happen, uh, we would scatter. We would wait till the anger subsided. We would take our punishment, right? But we would take it out when, when there wasn't so much anger, when, when things were cool. And good thing we were quicker and we could run and we could scatter. But, but when punishment comes, God does it in a just way, in a righteous way, in an appropriate way, and it is perfect. He is perfect in his righteousness and his justice. And we like that. We would not want an unrighteous God who just flips out and punishes out of anger. We have a just God who punishes righteously, and that's a comfort to us. Because anytime you've experienced evil, you want a God who gets angry at that. You want a God who is angry at evil, and you want a God who punishes evil appropriately. So the third big point of Nahum is that when punishment comes, it's just and it's irrevocable. The fourth point, and it's a very good point, <clears throat> one that kind of buoys this book that can be dark at times, and that is that there is hope and there is encouragement for God's people who are currently under oppression. There is hope and there is encouragement for God's people who are under oppression. That is, the oppressor's days are numbered and we must only endure and wait patiently. So that's a, a good introduction to the book of Nahum. Uh, now let me give you a little bit of an introduction into the sermon, uh, just to kind of help you know where we're going. <clears throat> I had a seminary professor and he told this story uh, in his hometown of Kentucky about uh, a particular man who was an alcoholic. And through his years, he experienced alcoholism. And as he was experiencing alcoholism, he experienced all the side effects and all the relational difficulties that went along with that. And, and for a period of time, he had a measure of victory over it. And doctors would help him and other people would help him. And over a period of time, he just struggled to overcome his addiction. And <clears throat> with, despite all the help, despite all the support, despite all the relationships, he could not overcome. And finally, he went in, um, in his older age, in his 50s or 60s, the doctor told him, based on the lab results, based on on your blood work, based on everything, I can see here, and I predict that you have maybe one good drunk left, and that's it. <clears throat> and so with that warning, and with all the repeated warnings from his past, this man promptly went out, experienced that one good drunk, and died very shortly thereafter. What does that have to do with this? This man had experienced... Lots of warnings, lots of warnings, lots of warnings. And despite all the warnings that he heard, despite all the doctors, despite his family, despite all the people who cared about him, um, it, it, he, he was unwilling to get the help that he needed and continued to walk in that way. Proverbs 29.1 says that the one who is often reproved, that is the one who is often warned, yet continues to stiffen his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. 
He who remains stiff-necked, though he is warned over and over again, the one who continues to stubbornly harden their heart and refuse to change, the Bible says that they will suddenly become broken beyond healing. And that's the nation of Assyria. God sent warning after warning after warning to them. And they refused to change. One commentator described Assyria as the arch-villain of the Old Testament, right? The, every kind of hero has a, a wicked villain and anti-hero, and, and Israel is no different. You just sort of think of the categories of all the people who tried to oppress Israel, all the world's superpowers who tried to destroy them. One uh, <clears throat> commentator said that atop of them all was Assyria. Well, think about that. That's Egypt, that's Babylon, that's Greece, that's Rome, that's the Philistines, right? They're probably the more famous one, but no, none of them top the list as far as it comes to Assyria because of their violence. Listen to a description of how violent Assyria was. They had these barbaric military policies and practices that terrorized the Middle East. They were known for public demonstrations of terrible violence. They knew how to surgically, uh, gruesomely remove body parts just enough to make uh, its victim remain coherent, and they would often leave just the one hand so they could shake that hand as you died. They would torture people, they would dismember people, and they would do so loudly and publicly as warning to all the other nations around, and they took great pleasure in their violence and wickedness. They used a well-developed propaganda to convince nations around them that they were invincible. And the fear they generated is attested throughout the ancient Near East and lots of other literature. And it aided all their expansion. Their failure to submit had its consequences to the Assyrian nation. Finally, having ignored Jonah's warning and repeated warnings, they would be destroyed. So that's what Nahum is talking about. So let's get into the text a little bit this morning. We're going to skim through it. This may be the only time you ever read the book of Nahum. And so we're going to read it out loud together and uh, and try to make sense of it. As I said before, verses 1 through 8 are a psalm. And so let's read the psalm, the opening parable, I mean the opening psalm together. Uh, Nahum chapter 1 verse 1 says, This is an oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Elkosh was likely his town. An oracle was the uh, same word for burden. This was um, Nahum's burden was Nineveh, and he's declaring this to the people of Judah concerning Nineveh. Here's where the psalm starts. The psalm is just a song or a poem. And so Nahum uses this psalm, and he says in verse 2, The Lord is jealous and avenging. And it's a key word in Nahum, avenging or revenge. Think of how many times you hear it in this passage. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he keeps wrath for his enemies. 
quite an introduction, right? You think, well, there he is. That's the God of the Old Testament. That's the one that everybody loves to hate, right? That's the, that's the one that all your friends at parties says, I don't like God, especially the God of the Old Testament because he's the, the angry God. And they'll take a passage like this, yank it out of context, and they'll say, this is the, this is the poster of the angry God of the Old Testament, right? He's venging. He's wrathful. He takes his vengeance on his adversaries, and he keeps wrath for his enemies. Don't be too hasty to make that pronouncement on God. Right? We'll get to that in a few minutes. Look at the counter in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are like the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and he makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Nahum is reminding his hearers, the people of Judah, he's proclaiming this loud and he's proclaiming this publicly. This is a sermon and he's using this introduction to remind them, you have this cruel, oppressive nation. They're violent. They're destroying you. They're destroying your family. They're destroying your your, um, entire country and the countries all around you. And yet here is who the Lord is. Take your focus off the oppressor and remember who the Lord is. He is over even these mechanisms of the earth. He is sovereign over the earth. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And here's the good news. He knows those who take refuge in him. That is, God knows his own. And those who trust in him, those who come to him receiving his mercy, they find shelter in the midst of all that storm that's raging all around them. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, reminding us of Noah, he will make a complete end of his adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Can you imagine the hearers who Nahum walked up in front of a crowd who is being cruelly oppressed by a wicked, violent nation, and he starts the message like this? And all along, they've lost hope over all these years, over two centuries of Assyrian oppression. All of his hearers, their heads are bowed. They don't even want to listen to what Nahum might have to say. But then as they start to hear his focus on who God is, maybe their heads rise with a little bit of hope. Is this the message we've been hoping for? That God will have seen our oppression? That God will have seen our violent oppressor and his evil? And and is this a message of hope? Their eyes start to raise and Nahum begins the second section. And in this second section, he alternates a message between um, Nineveh and a message to Judah. And so look at verses 9 through 11. This is him talking to Judah about Nineveh. And this is the message that he would have said to Nineveh. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. That's he's saying, Nineveh, you might say that that, um, we may have a setback, but we're going to keep going. We're going to rebuild kind of the words of Hosea. But the Lord is saying, no, I will hit you so hard that you will not get back up. 
Verse 10, they are like entangled thorns. Have you ever been entangled in thorns? I can remember at my sixth grade birthday party, me and 12 or 14 kind of rowdy boys, we went out for kind of a night of mischief. And as we were running from people, uh, one of us, one of my friends got tangled up in a briar bush and he couldn't get out. He had to leave with cuts and scrapes and his shirt behind. And, and when we went back into the streetlight in my little cul-de-sac in Oklahoma, he was just cut to pieces. And it reminded me that, that even though they think they can get out, they are entangled in these thorns. They cannot escape. That's how Nahum is saying, Nineveh will be entangled in thorns. Like drunkards when they drink, they won't have the sense of mind to get out. They are going to be consumed like stubble fully dried. Verse 11, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, came one who was a worthless counselor. Lord, the Lord is taking this personally. Right? He sent Jonah to warn them and to, to declare who he is and to give them a chance for mercy. And, and they responded for Jonah, right? They, they humbled themselves and, and there was mercy at that time. And God gave them grace and he gave them more time, about 150 years. But <clears throat> instead of fearing the God who sent Jonah, instead of fearing that God and pursuing a relationship with him in grace and mercy, they, they went to the nation and they destroyed the northern kingdom. Do you remember Israel? was divided into two kingdoms, the 10 tribes north and the two tribes south of Judah. God uh, allowed the northern kingdom to be carried off by these Assyrians. They didn't care about the God who gave them grace and mercy. They went and attacked his people. And so now God, 150 years later, is going to give them their due, and he's taking this attack on himself personally. Now we get to the next little part is a comforting message to Judah. Look at verses 12 through 13. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. And this is to Judah. He says, even though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. This is a picture of them being in slavery and now they're free. This is good news. This is good news. If you've ever struggled with any kind of addiction, it can feel like you're, you're enslaved to something. If you've ever felt that way, that, that as soon as the temptation is dangled in front of you, you're a slave to that temptation and you have to give in to it. This is what they must have felt as being oppressed, that any time they could not escape from this affliction, but now the Lord is giving them hope. I will break the yoke off of you. You couldn't do it yourself, but I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to break off this oppressor from off of you. Verse 14 is another message to Nineveh. The Lord has given a commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image, and I will make your grave, for you are vile. Why do you make a grave? The only reason you make a grave is when death is imminent, when you're preparing for an imminent death. And the Lord is saying, I am going to make your grave, for you are vile. And if you're looking for a key verse, the message um, of Nahum, probably the key verse is chapter 1, verse 15. And in chapter 1, verse 15, this is a key message to the uh, people of Judah, giving them hope. And it says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes 
peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. That means you're going to have feasts again. You're not going to be completely wiped out. There is hope. There is good news. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He, Nineveh, is utterly cut off. Can you see how that would be good news? That would be great news to the people of Judah who are experiencing this. So that's section 2, verses chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, these alternating messages to Nineveh and to Judah. Then we get into chapters 2 and 3, and I'm just going to read this. Um, this is like an action movie. Nahum is predicting and telling them how the siege and the destruction of Nineveh will take place. And it would be Babylon who does this work um, about 30 years after Nahum predicts it, but their strength is already falling apart. So let's just read chapter 2 and 3 together. This is the destruction of Nineveh. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, The scatterer has come up against you, so man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. God is telling them to bow up. It's coming, right? Get, get all your stuff together, put all your armor on, the, the battle is coming. Verse 2, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for the plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and throw through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. Right? This is a picture of an army surrounding a city, building up cutting off all the flow of uh, all the supplies that, and the food that would come into the city. They cut it all off and they try to choke down the supplies to the city. They build these ramps that go up into the city for the final siege. This is, um, this is Nahum's description of what's going to happen. The river gates are opened. Remember, uh, the, the city of Mosul, Iraq, is what Nineveh used to be, and it's surrounded by these, by these rivers, the Euphrates River and other little rivers that surround it. And so there are all these river gates. They're opened, and the palace is melting away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. All the slave girls are lamenting, moaning like doves, and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters all run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none of it turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things, right? Think about um, all of our treasures, of our national treasures in Washington, D.C. If someone, invading nation, were to come and to plunder all the museums and all the things that we have in our nation, this is Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of this massive nation of Assyria, and everything valuable is being taken. Verse 10, desolate, desolation, ruin, hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish in all the loins, all faces are growing pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with no one to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He has filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. That's an accurate description of two centuries of Nineveh's 
unrelenting violence against all the nations. It's like a, a cave filled with violence and bones and destruction. Behold, verse 13, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions, and I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to the bloody city! all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of the slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, and they stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful full and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Verse 5 is God's motive, and it's his declaration as a reason against them. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirt over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. This is graphic language. By this time, the people of Judah who are listening to Nahum say this are standing and clapping and cheering because of this violent nation of Assyria who God is going to finally rise up and defeat, and they're going to get theirs. This is a terribly vengeant book, right? Verse 7, all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Probably no one. Where shall I seek comforters for, from you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile? Now, now this had taken place, this helps state the book. Thebes had fallen in the uh, 660s before, and so the, the falling of Thebes took place before, and enough time to compare the falling of Thebes to the destruction that would happen in Nineveh. Verse 9, Cush was her strength in Egypt too, and that was without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. All of her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all of her great men were bound in chains. You, Nineveh, also will be drunken, and you will go into hiding, and you will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege and strengthen your forts. Go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens, and the locust spreads its wings and flies away. All of your princes are like these grasshoppers, and your scribes are like clouds of locusts setting on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away, and no one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no one easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. 
Wow. What a book. Just to help us gain this in context, my grandfather, Gilbert Braun, and his, um, some of his brothers fought in World War II, were a part of Normandy, and all came together with the Allies to fight against Nazi Germany. And I remember hearing stories, not from him, but from friends of his um, that had passed on to different grandparents and others. And you've heard s- stories as well that when the war was finally over, when there was surrender, when um, an evil nation was defeated, there was this sort of rejoicing. There was this sort of rejoicing. Uh, A land can't take evil and violence. It won't put up with it. People won't put up with evil and violence. At some point, that oppressive force has to be defeated and in God's mercy it comes in his time and it's a time for rejoicing when the wicked rule the righteous can't stand it the righteous can't stand it and the falling of Assyria was like that this sermon that Nahum preached this message that he delivered would have been cheered and applauded it would have restored hope in the righteous and the good as god finally would meet evil with righteousness it was a good thing and yet at times we cringe when we think about a god who would write things like this there's some graphic language here To think about God being opposed in such a dramatic, graphic, violent way. How do we reconcile our God of love? Because we kind of like Jesus, right? We like Jesus who went around and healed people and spoke a message of love. And and it's hard for us to reconcile a God of wrath with a God of love. Not realizing that wrath is love. Wrath against evil is also love. And God is not shy about confronting evil with punishment. And he does this to the Assyrians. There are two points I want to make in conclusion that help us deal with the book of Nahum. Number one is a warning. That hard-hearted rejection incites punishment from a God who won't relent when it's time to punish. Proverbs 29.1 says, the one who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Reminds us of Romans 1, those three categories of though they knew God, they didn't believe him, they suppressed him, their knowledge of him, and they pursued their sin. And so God um, would give them a message and he would make himself known through the natural creation and through his people. And it says they, they stiff-armed him. They didn't want anything to do with him, and so he gave them over. And then he gives them over a second time, and then the third punishment is he gives them over. He, he essentially abandons them to their own devices. When mercy is offered as it was to Nineveh, take it. God is warning you to change, to repent, to turn. Take it. He won't offer forever. This isn't the case with Nineveh. God warned them. He gave them opportunity. He sent a prophet there. They they had opportunity. They didn't take it. 
So God's punishment came swift. Some of the harder passages for us to stomach in the Old Testament are verses that describe the conquest of it's basically the Canaanite genocide where God instructed the Israelites coming in to show them no mercy. Have you heard those phrases from Deuteronomy 7? What do we do with a God who arms Israel and tells them to go into this nation and show them no mercy? Well, if you just take those passages out of context and you don't understand the long suffering and the patience and the evil of the people whom God said to show them no mercy, then you'll miss the point and you'll mischaracterize who God is. All you have to do is look back at Genesis chapter 15 and the promise to Abraham. And in the promise of Abraham, he tells him in verse 16, you're going to go into this nation and subdue it. But before that happens, let me just let you know, you're going to go into Egypt and you're going to be a slave for 400 years. Because why are they going to be enslaved? Why can't they have the conquest now? The reason God gives is that, quote, the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its fullest point. The Amorites were a wicked people. They threw infants into fire. They, they worshipped in idolatry. They worshipped sexually. They worshipped in all these different ways. They worshipped everything but God. And yet God sent people to warn them for 400 years. Well, who does Abraham meet in uh, previous, uh, before Jerusalem was Jerusalem, when it was Hebron? Who did God, who did Abraham meet? He met a, a priest named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who ministered as the priest of God Most High, King of Peace, and Prince of Righteousness, this King Melchizedek ministered in the Canaanite nation, and Abraham did what? He gave him a tenth of everything, understanding that he was a righteous king of peace and a righteous king reigning in that area. That was hundreds of years before God told the Israelites to go in and show them no mercy. You won't find a nation that God has punished severely, whom he hasn't already sent a witness and already sent and offered mercy and peace and grace. God's mercy is available. Take it when it's offered. Don't harden your hearts and ignore the offer. Because this punishment is sure. And it's coming for those who reject God and reject his offer of mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the first conclusion. Take the mercy God offers. But I want you to see the good news of this. That is, there is incredible hope for those who are oppressed. There is incredible hope for those who are oppressed, those who are in shackles. Nahum's legacy was declare, to declare hope to an oppressed people that their oppressor would be defeated, and that's good news. That's the good news of the book of Nahum. If you remember verse 15 of chapter 1, Behold, the feet of him who brings good news, the one who publishes peace, Keep your feasts, fulfill your vows. Never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is a message of hope that the oppressor and the evil one will be defeated. I don't think Nahum probably ever had to buy a drink in Jerusalem again, right? He preached this message and probably for the rest of his life, everybody paid for his meals and, hey, there's Nahum. Remember what Nahum said? And, and as they saw the downfall, 
of Nineveh and Assyria and eventually leading to their destruction. Uh, Nahum was everybody's favorite guy because he was the first one to preach that the oppressor, that the evil one is going to be defeated. He, that's good news. And he was the messenger who got to do that. Interestingly enough, uh, I'm going to show you a picture here. Interestingly enough, Nahum makes his way into the New Testament in a different way. Uh, you may see a picture here in just a minute on the screen. Um, this is me, a skinnier me a few years ago, <laughs> um, in Capernaum, which is the town of Jesus. Right? Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the word village in Hebrew is the word kafir. Kafir is just the word for village, and Nahum, Capernaum is just the Hebrew word village of Nahum. Now listen, Jesus set up headquarters in the town of Nahum, and Jesus was the one who declared the good news that the accuser, the oppressor, the enemy would be defeated, and there would be grace and mercy for all who receive that, for those who take refuge in him. Flip over to Luke chapter 4. We'll conclude with this, because this is the good news. Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, Jesus has gone back to Galilee. He's announcing this uh, his ministry beginning in his hometown of Nazareth. This is right before he moved to Capernaum. And this is what he says in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4. He comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it is written. Now listen closely. See if this doesn't mirror what Nahum said when he brought good news. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus moved from that point into Capernaum. Isn't that something? He moves to the village of Nahum, the one prophet who declared from the one wicked, evil empire of the Israelites, freedom and good news for the oppressed. And that news still rings true today. That if you find yourself enslaved in sin, if you find yourself oppressed and experiencing the wickedness of an oppressor, that in Jesus Christ there is freedom and there is hope and there is forgiveness and there is mercy and there is grace. He can give you a new start today. He can erase your past and forgive all of the sins of your past and make today a brand new day of new starts. This can be the day in which salvation has come. And this is the message of Jesus, and this was the message of Nahum, is that the oppressor has been defeated. Jesus accomplished that in the cross. And so for all of us who in the room are redeemed, who have experienced the salvation, this grace, we know that our sins are forgiven, that we have a new future, that we have a new hope, that we have taken refuge in Jesus Christ. And in him, in that refuge, we find peace from the oppressor. Isn't that good news?
Isn't that good news? It took a long time to get there, right? You said, Gibby, you could have just told us that right away. You didn't have to go through all of the book of Nahum, but for the one sermon that you'll ever hear in your life from the book of Nahum, I just thought I'd give it everything I got, all right? I just figured I might as well load both barrels and, uh, and shoot. But I think ultimately it's a, a word of hope and encouragement uh, about a God who gives grace and mercy and, and, and as opposed to evil. And that's good news for us. And so, Father, we, we rejoice in your goodness. We rejoice in your grace. We re- re- rejoice in your mercy that you demonstrate. Uh, we thank you for the way of salvation that can be found in Jesus Christ. Uh, and we thank you, Lord, that you offer terms of peace and that for you, for those who take refuge in you, you will bring peace. We pray in Jesus' name that there would be those who might be hearing my uh, words today that would, for the first time ever, maybe they might uh, surrender to you, Jesus, that they might accept your terms of peace and mercy and grace, that they might throw themselves at your mercy and find in you new life and salvation and grace. That can be done, Lord, if someone even now in their own heart would say to you, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've rebelled against you. I've gone my own way, and I have not trusted in you. I've never asked you for forgiveness. I've never asked you for grace. I've never put my faith and trust in you, and I've never given my life to you. I may have prayed a prayer, but I didn't give my life to you. And so, Lord, for those who are hearing my voice today, I pray that they would surrender, that they would find in you grace and mercy while it's being offered in Jesus' name. I pray that you would use this time for your glory and for your majesty. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.